So the thing I can't get over is that Mark Andreessen posted his new article. Let me see. One, two, three, four, five times in a row on Twitter, four of which have no supplementary text. You know, for a guy who co-founded Netscape, you'd think he would be better at Twitter. I don't know, man. I think you have to open yourself up to the possibility that he is telling you the future of Twitter because this is the guy who invented the tweet storm. Let's not forget. He invented the tweet storm. Did he? And then he got, yeah, he did. And then it would, before it was called the tweet storm, it was just Mark Andreessen posting tweet after tweet in a thread. And then tweet storms became a thing. And then he disappeared off Twitter. He like retired on top and then showed back up for random little stuff, including all of a sudden this. I'm just bitter because last night I was poking around and I noticed that he was not following me on Twitter. And a couple years back, I had some tweet about Bernie Sanders and nuclear and he jumped all over it, retweeted it and then started following me. And he followed me for years. And then I checked his Twitter feed last night and he wasn't following me anymore. And I really wouldn't be upset about it if he wasn't following 20,000 people. Wait, so you're saying for certain that in the last few years, Mark Andreessen followed you on Twitter. He retweeted you, followed you, and then deliberately sometime between then and now, we don't know when, went through and unfollowed you. Yes. Oh, God. I would I would kill to know what caused him to unfollow you. Me too. Should we go back through all your tweets <laughs> and guess? We will spare everybody, including myself, that embarrassment and pain. But even if Mark isn't following what I'm saying, I'm certainly following what he's saying. And so are a lot of other people right now. And that is the focus of this week's episode. But first, the interchange is brought to you by Viking Cold Solutions. Storing cold inside critical food supply infrastructure provides three times longer resiliency during planned or unplanned power outages. See how thermal storage can benefit the grid, the food industry, and the environment at vikingcold.com grid. We're also brought to you by NextTracker. NextTracker is the world's leading solar tracking solutions company, and it works with customers to advance the connected power plant of the future with smart trackers, energy storage systems, and the True Capture Advanced Control software. Find out how to maximize your revenue and yields in solar at nexttracker.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media. Welcome to the show. And it is time to build. But build what exactly? Famed software pioneer and venture capitalist Mark Andreessen is out with a new piece that is making the rounds among the Thinkfluencer crowd. It's called It's Time to Build. It's part call to arms and part flogging over America's inability to build things. And it got us thinking about how to apply his thesis to the low-carbon economy. Shail Khan is the other part of the us in that sentence. He's managing director at Energy Impact Partners, a VC firm focused on the clean energy transition. Hello, Shale. Hello, Stephen. You are not in your sunroom today. No, you've convinced me to leave my favorite room in my house and descend into my wife's office to kick her out in order to have better audio. So she thanks you for that. <laughs> So let's talk about Mark Andreessen. Mark is a partner at the VC firm Andreessen Horowitz. He's considered one of the more important people in software. He co-founded this company called Netscape, which was the first real 
functional web browser for internet users. At one point, it had 90% of the market. And he wrote this manifesto in 2011 called Software is Eating the World that has really been this guiding light for many venture investors and people starting companies over the last decade. And now, apparently, he has a new focus, building things. Um, So, Shale, let's talk about this piece and then how it applies to the low-carbon economy. What is he arguing in this new piece? So the piece starts off talking as every uh, thinkfluencer piece uh, does these days about COVID, um, and specifically like makes a very brief case that we have not, we collectively, not even just the U.S., but like we humanity have not responded um, as well as we theoretically could have to COVID. And but very quickly moves on from COVID to a much broader argument, um, which you know he's he's basically saying that our inability to respond effectively to COVID is a function of the fact that we have stopped building big things. We had not built built the infrastructure and the systems that would have allowed us to react quicker, and that is not just true in the health and medicine world that applies to COVID. But it's also true in his mind in education and manufacturing and transportation and a bunch of other places. So the argument he's trying to make is like, like you said, it's it's in part a call to action saying, let's raise our ambitions once again, think about building big things. And then he has a kind of litany of things that he would like to see built. Yeah, let's hear a quick clip from the beginning of the piece that sets up his argument. Many of us would like to pin the cause on one political party or another on one government or another. But the harsh reality is that it all failed. No Western country or state or city was prepared. And despite hard work and often extraordinary sacrifice by many people within these institutions. So the problem runs deeper than your favorite political opponent or your home nation. Part of the problem is clearly foresight, a failure of imagination. But the other part of the problem is what we didn't do in advance and what we're failing to do now. And that is a failure of action and specifically our widespread inability to build. So there's Mark Andreessen himself reading the piece. And the reason why we're talking about it is because it fits into a lot of themes on this show, but it also sparked a surprising number of counter reactions from a lot of thinkers in the press from folks at think tanks, from YouTubers even. There was this split response, some of it along political lines. And we also had somewhat of a split response as well. It caused Shale himself to write his own response, specifically about building for positive climate outcomes. And that will form the basis for the latter part of this episode. And we'll get to that. But I want to first go a little deeper on the general response. So Shale, when you read this, how did you react to it? Yeah, it's interesting. I've had an evolution um, of my reaction to this. So, so Mark posted this article, I think on Saturday, or at least I, I read it on Saturday. And immediately for me, I read it and my experience of it was one of inspiration. And I started immediately, I, I was a little bit annoyed as we'll talk about in a minute. There was one part that frustrated me. Um, but the broader reaction for me was, one of inspiration toward, okay, what would I build? How would I build a decarbonized economy? And that sent me down this whole rabbit hole, which is what we're going to spend the second half of the episode on. So for me, in the moment, it was exciting. 
Now, what's happened since then is that I fired off a response to this and published it without seeing everybody else's reactions. And since I've had a lot of people, um, both individually to me and just from like things that I've been reading, make, I think, fairly reasonable points about the limitations of the article that Mark posted in the first place and the limitations of him as a vessel for that argument, which I'm sure we'll talk about as well. So in some ways, my views on the original article that he posted have evolved since I originally read it. But I stand by that, at least for me personally, it is kind of an inspiring call to action. What were the arguments that caused you to change your mind? Well, the main, a lot of it has to do with um, some of the stuff that you already described just in in Mark Andreessen's bio. So the types of things that he's talking about building, I think some people have interpreted what he wrote as being all about building infrastructure. And indeed, he does mention a bunch of infrastructure, physical infrastructure that would need to get built. I think it's a little broader than that because he talks about things like the education system and so on. But a lot of it does require physical stuff to get built. And it's a weird thing for a person who has you know, staked his entire business and is most famous for having written this software is eating the world article to be making the argument that we've failed to build physical things. Andreessen Horowitz invests in software. That's what they do, right? And so is he the right vessel to make the argument for building when clearly what he means goes well beyond software. Yes, and I went and looked at their portfolio. I don't. I certainly don't know a lot of the companies, but I just clicked through on a bunch of them, and you know, the Andreessen Horowitz portfolio is mostly software companies. So I found that a little bit rich thinking through his arguments. Right now, I don't think that the fact that he's been a software investor and that he's been at the for the vanguard of software innovation inherently makes him um, unable to make an argument about building physical stuff. But the other thing that I think has rightly been pointed out was missing from the article is any commitment from himself as to what he personally is going to do about this. So there's no, there could have been a section at the end, which says, and I intend to be a part of this building. Here's what I'm going to do personally. Here's what Andreessen Horowitz is going to do. We're going to continue to invest in software, but we intend to invest in software that enables, you can't invest in software, you know, to get this stuff built without somebody actually building the infrastructure, whatever. There's a million different ways that he could have framed that, and none of that is in there. Yeah, that's why it felt like typical Silicon Valley disconnect to me, because I love the fact that he's making this argument. I appreciate it. It's an argument that needs to be made by more people. And um, I thought it was like a pretty well-written piece, but it did feel like someone kind of sitting back in their chair quarterbacking, saying like, you, you people, go build some stuff. I also felt like he didn't really touch on what is preventing us from building new things or building physical infrastructure here in the U.S. And it was a real missed opportunity to talk about what is actually holding us back. Yeah. And that's, to be fair, that's a really hard question to answer in a short essay. But I agree with you to some extent. He did have one paragraph on sort of diagnosing the problem. And it's a really well-written paragraph, in my opinion, but it's actually not making much of an argument. Here, I'll, I'll read you a quote. He says, the problem is desire. We need to want these things. The problem is inertia. We need to want these things more than we want to prevent these things. The problem is regulatory capture. We need to want new companies to build these things, even if incumbents don't like it, even if only just to force the incumbents to build these things. And the problem is will. We need to build these things. Ah, it's so annoying. Which, I mean, you know. That, that annoys me so much. <laughs> I mean, we want to build this stuff. Of course, who doesn't want to build new, exciting technologies, 
put people to work building roads and bridges. Like, it's not about willpower. It's well, about the systems in place that prevent us from doing it. I don't know. I think it's more of a yes and. I think it probably is willpower. And there are a bunch of systems in place that prevent it. And I, I don't think he would disagree with that, probably, for what it's worth. He would probably say, yes, and what my, I, my call to arms here is to get everybody to break through these barriers because it's the only way we're ever going to actually build at large scale again. But it's true that, that, that the diagnosis of the problem is pretty lacking here. Yes, it is. And I read through a lot of pieces of criticism that were well thought out, some of which focused on you know, why the tech industry hasn't done a good job of, you know, building things beyond um, apps and why uh, the political system prevents us from building things. But I was really reminded by a conversation that I had had with Michael Skelly, who was the co-founder of Clean Line Energy Partners, this big transmission developer who we have talked about in the past. And Skelly was the main character in Russell Gold's book, Superpower. And he tried for a decade to get this massive uh, transmission line built from the Midwest that would carry wind electricity down to the Southeast. And they just had extraordinary troubles building the coalitions needed to construct a piece of uh, beneficial infrastructure. And I, I talked to him recently about that and interviewed him. And he said, like, the American system is unique in that when you plan something like that, there really is no central planning. And so you have to form all these really difficult coalitions from the, you know, from the homeowner through the community up through the national level in really balkanized ways that make it super difficult to do anything ambitious. And that is um, something that we are uniquely good at here in America can sometimes be a very good thing, uh, but it prevents a lot of like ambitious projects from going forward. And I thought that was really prescient. And it's not something that Andreessen really even bothers toying with. Not that he needed to necessarily, but the structural issues in the U.S. system are so deep, it felt disconnected when he made this argument. It made it feel like he was just sort of tossing this argument out there and there wasn't a whole lot behind it. Yeah, I think that's a reasonable criticism. On the other hand, you know, if what he ultimately intended, and he's pretty explicit about this as well, if what he ultimately intended is to spark a conversation about not only what we should build, but how we can build it, then mission accomplished, right? We're having this conversation. There were all those reactions. I mean, it obviously sparked me into action. So I don't know. I don't fault him that much for not addressing every nuance here. He used his megaphone, which is a large megaphone, to start a conversation that, you know, may go nowhere and just live in Thinkfluencer land forever, but um, may result in some action. So I think we should get into the energy and climate piece because there is another portion that really bothered me about climate. And we'll talk about that in a bit. First, a quick word about our sponsors. We're brought to you by Viking Cold Solutions. Long duration energy storage for large commercial and industrial loads has been elusive. But now Viking Cold has a technology that provides the grid with an economical demand management tool for CNI refrigeration, the highest demand per cubic foot of any industrial category. A single warehouse can store up to one megawatt and discharge for up to 13 hours per day. Systems have a levelized cost of energy of less than two cents per kilowatt hour. And if you want to learn about how thermal energy storage can benefit your facility and the grid and the environment, go to vikingcold.com grid. 
We're also brought to you by Next Tracker. Next Tracker is the global leader in intelligent solar tracker systems, software, and services. During the time it takes to listen to this podcast, Next Tracker will have collected gigabytes of real-time operational and performance data from hundreds of thousands of sensors on its solar tracking systems and power plants around the globe. Next Tracker also has its new True Capture Smart Tracker Control System, which provides additional intelligence and resiliency for your solar power plant. Find out more at nexttracker.com. All right, so let's hear what Andreessen said about building for climate. It was a quick mention, but there's a lot rolled up in what he says. So let's hear it. Solve the climate crisis by building. Energy experts say that all carbon-based electrical power generation on the planet could be replaced by a few thousand new zero-emission nuclear reactors. So let's build those. Maybe we can start with 10 new reactors, then 100, then the rest. Climate change solved. <laughs> uh, what was your reaction, Shale? Uh, that was the. This is the one. Well, I mean, look. This is, I guess, the part that spurred me into action to write my own response. But this is the one part of the piece where I really was crestfallen. It. First of all, we should. I mean, I guess we should briefly debunk this to some extent. Um, which is to say, first of all, I don't know what energy experts he's talking about that think we could, um, we could replace all electrical generation with new nuclear. Um, and still operate the grid efficiently and flexibly. Two, electricity does not solve climate change. Everybody who listens to this podcast knows this, but you know, electricity is one of the sectors that um, emits greenhouse gas emissions and not the only one, even if you electrify other things. Um, and just like beyond that, you know, I'm I'm a nuclear proponent, I think generally, but I don't think that it is the only solution to climate change, which is exactly how he's describing it. And the thing that's frustrating to me about this that I've never fully been able to comprehend, there's this, especially now being in the venture capital world, I see I'm more exposed to this now than I, I used to be, which is there's this very strange strain of nuclear idealism, almost nuclear fetishism in the in some corners of Silicon Valley with some investors who've just gotten convinced that like the solution to climate change is so obvious and it's just nuclear, whether it be like next generation nuclear fission or nuclear fusion, but either way, um, I don't know where it came from. I don't know why that exists and it's um, it's so resilient to every other bit of information, but it's very strange to me. Yeah. Have you noticed it? Oh, definitely. But I think this is part of a bigger problem and why this sort of Silicon Valley thinking gets criticized. Um, and it, you can get a sense for this kind of thinking in other parts of the essay where he just says, like, why aren't we developing vaccines faster? Like, just build more facilities to, to build, you know, get vaccines to market faster. It's like, that's not really how it works, right? I mean, if you have a virus that mutates, it takes a significant amount of time to... Uh, create a vaccine to match that mutation. Like you don't just build more things and then expect to get a vac vaccine faster. Um, and it, by all accounts, like we are doing a pretty fast job of building vaccines, right? Like sometimes it can take, it takes a decade for some vaccines to get to market. Like we're talking about two years here for COVID-19. So that's an aside, but I feel like that is what really annoyed me and he just sort of has this aside about nuclear like sure just build a hundred nuclear power plants or a bunch of nuclear power plants and like problem solved there you go 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 ahead and do it folks and 
Uh, that I, it just irks me. I mean, that's not how the world works. So I have, I don't pretend to have enough expertise to respond to the vaccine aside, but on the, the nuclear thing, I mean, the, the closest I've been able to come to an explanation for why I think there's this line of thinking that, that persists is that if you're thinking from the outsider's perspective and you're looking for first principles thinking, which is a thing that um, you see a lot in Silicon Valley and, you know, Elon Musk is probably the most emblematic of this, right? He's like, um, the the perfect first principles thinker, you might be on the outside, you might look at nuclear and say, okay, this is a zero emissions source of electricity generation. It's been around for many decades. Um, it is broadly safe, you know, all things accounted for. Um, and you might believe it to be cheap, right? Not knowing all the details of cost overruns on new nuclear plants and things like that. And you might say, well, this is obviously an answer. We just need to we just need to build a lot more of it. And these crazy enviros are the things that are that are stopping us from doing that. Those of us who have spent a lot of time in the energy industry recognize that like, even if you could build a lot more nuclear, it's not the entirety of your solution, right? You still need other resources on the grid and the grid isn't made up of one kind of um, resource anyway. And nuclear may indeed not actually be that cheap. So there's like nuance to it that you don't get from the first principles thinking. But I think that might be what, that might be at the root of it. Yeah. So I realize I didn't really answer your question exactly in the way you framed it. I mean, there's there's I don't know exactly what guides this thinking, but there certainly is the sort of killer app type mentality for a lot of problems. And you can see that seeded throughout the essay. And certainly I have heard that strain of thinking from Silicon Valley, that if you just, you know, you just have a couple key solutions, or if you just do this one thing, then you can solve most of the problem. And then, you know, you get deeper into how energy markets work, you understand what it takes to build that scale of power plant. Um, You understand how it interacts with other energy resources at certain times of the day. And, you know, the world is a very complicated place. So I I don't I I certainly don't pretend to understand the root of that thinking, but I think it's a it's a common challenge. And so that brings us to Mark Andreessen himself, who assumed that people like us would be taking to their pen and paper or taking to their microphones and coming out and and criticizing him. And so he actually uh, initiated a call to action, which you heeded, Shale. Right. He fully expected that people like me were going to read his essay and find parts of it to be objectionable. So he also wrote, I'll quote him again. He wrote, I expect this essay to be the target of criticism. Here's a modest proposal to my critics. Instead of attacking my ideas of what to build, conceive your own. So, you know, again, back to like how I reacted to the reading this the first time, I was like, yeah, you know, he's right. Rather than just complaining about nuclear as a singular panacea to climate change, I should think about what what would I build? Like if I'm putting my uh, theoretical hat on, what, what would it take to build a truly decarbonized economy? Right. So if it's not 100 nuclear power plants, then what is it? And you have a laundry list here. So maybe we can go through some of them, talk about some of the more high impact choices here, and then maybe think through what would it take to build them and what would hold it back? Yep. Um, I will say that when I started coming up with this list, which was not intended to be an article, I thought it was going to be very short. Um, I generally, and I've said this a bunch of times on the podcast, have this heuristic in my head of like, here's how you solve climate change. You you decarbonize electricity, you electrify everything that you can, and then you pick up the pieces of all the other sectors. And I still think that's true. But when I actually started 
writing down all the components of what I would build to decarbonize the economy, it ends up being, I think there's like 37 or 38 individual things that I think need to get built. Somehow I feel like a, a list of 38 items isn't the way to build a viral essay shale. But you did have a good good uh, amount of traction here. A lot of people have read it. I mean, I suppose I could have buzzfeeded it and called it like, <laughs> these 38 crazy tricks will decarbonize the economy. You think that would have been better? <laughs> Help America build better with these 38 tips. Yeah. Okay, so what's in there? How are you breaking them down? <laughs> it ends up being 10 individual things that need to be accomplished. And each one of those things gets built via three or four areas. So to be more specific here, let me just like read you the 10 things that I think need to get done. First, you build a zero carbon electrical grid. Then you turn renewable intermittency on that grid into an asset, not a cost. Then you make sure that that grid is resilient and reliable. Then you reinvigorate public transportation you electrify, electrify, electrify. You then decarbonize industry, which has not already been electrified elsewhere. You then decarbonize agriculture. You then still have not fully decarbonized the economy. So you then need to remove carbon from the atmosphere and create an economy around that. You then throughout need to remember energy efficiency and implement it wherever you can. And then finally, to get on the soapbox you've heard me get on before, you need to ensure carbon transparency to make sure that the emissions reductions we are getting permeate throughout the economy. So that's the 10 broad things that need to get accomplished. <laughs> so, okay, so let's think through the, the hardest ones out of all this. I'm, I'm looking through your list and you have one, build a massive network of HVDC transmission lines. You also have uh, that. So that's under the zero carbon electrical grid construction. Then under turn renewable energy intermittency into an asset, we have at scale green hydrogen production via electrolysis. Um, let's let's start with those two. So HVDC transmission lines, absolutely needed, very difficult to build uh, across different markets and across the country. So how do we do that? Yeah, extremely difficult to build, perhaps to the point of being unrealistic. And, you know, I've, I've had a few people make that point to me as well. But this is me putting on my ambitious decarbon global decarbonization hat. Um, how do you build out a massive network of high voltage DC transmission? I mean, I don't think there's one single answer to that. You certainly need political will at every level. You need, you need it at the states. You need it at the federal level. There's opportunities in theory in a stimulus program that could build out more transmission. You also can benefit from new technologies. There are some new high voltage transmission lines, for example, that are getting built um, alongside railroads. There's other opportunities to build underground. So to the extent that you can, you can mitigate some of the nimbyism and, and issues that you face otherwise that way. Um, but realistically, I mean, that's just a very hard one. It seems uh, easier than building a lot of new nuclear power plants, though. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, they're both pretty tough, to be honest. I, I think there's probably an equal likelihood of a fleet of new nuclear in the United States as there is a fleet of high voltage transmission across the country. Mm. To be clear here, neither of us are anti-nuclear. We're just nuclear realists and we understand how challenged the economics are and how difficult, you know, permitting and siting new nuclear plants are. You actually have nuclear in your mix of zero carbon electricity resources. Right. I'm all for nuclear. I, I think it's a 
it's a tool in the toolbox of decarbonization. I, what I was reacting to in Mark Andreessen's piece is that he considered it to be the entire toolbox. Um, but I'm all for it being one of the tools. So the next one that really stands out to me is green hydrogen production. That's producing hydrogen via electrolysis with excess wind and solar. This also seems like a really difficult one to me. I actually think this one isn't as ambitious. I think it it may indeed happen. Um, there is a ton of effort and investment that's going to go into producing green hydrogen over the next decade. It's not going to start in the United States. It's going to start in Europe and Japan and Australia and some other places, but I think it'll get here. I mean, the thing that I, the point that I wanted to make here is that, um, you know, hydrogen requires an economy around it, right? And so you can build a whole bunch of electrolysis to produce green hydrogen, but the market for hydrogen today is not that big. So you then need to create demand for that hydrogen and you need to create infrastructure to transport it, which is a big issue with hydrogen as well. So you need to either transport it via existing natural gas pipelines or new pipelines or on trucks or whatever. Um, so there's a whole infrastructure that has to get built out. And at the end of the other end, you have to actually have a buyer for that green hydrogen. And the thing that is sort of tantalizing about hydrogen is there are theoretically a bunch of end markets in which it can be used, ranging from electricity to plastics to transportation. But you got to figure out some of those. Otherwise, there's no end market, even if you can produce it. So aren't we just living in a simulation, according to Musk? So can't Mark Andreessen just build a piece of software to like fix all this and... I mean, to be fair, everything that I'm, I'm, I buy into the software is eating the world argument. Everything that I'm describing requires software. Software will enable and enhance everything. It's just none of it is software alone. Right. Okay. So the other thing that stands out to me from this list is removing carbon from the atmosphere. Like clearly to solve climate change, we need to build a bunch of low carbon power plants, but that's only one piece of the solution set. So Shale, how do we start removing carbon from the atmosphere in order to address the problem? What are the, the technology sets? What do we need to build? Yeah. So I think this is interesting. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about this before, but it's a, it's a fascinating emerging area of focus in the climate tech universe. Um, high level, I think there's you know, three kind of different main ways that we can go about removing carbon from the atmosphere. The first is point source carbon capture, which means this is what you imagine carbon capture and storage is from, you know, the past decade of um, people trying to build it, which is take a smokestack from power plant or, you know, industrial manufacturing facility or whatever, capture the emissions at the source um, and then store it or do something with it. The second, which is a newer thing, and there's really only three companies um, trying to do this at scale right now, is direct air capture, which is not point source. So it's not capturing off of a smokestack. It is literally just sucking CO2 out of the air anywhere. And then the third is sequestering carbon in trees for the most part. And so there you have these new initiatives like Mark Benioff from Salesforce leading this initiative called One Trillion Trees, where they're trying to plant one trillion trees to, again, suck a ton of carbon out of the atmosphere. Um, so those are ways to re remove carbon from the atmosphere. The other component, if you want to see that happen at scale that I think you ultimately need, um, is what people are starting to call carbon to value. So if you don't have any value for that sequestered carbon, then the only incentive to do it is the cost of carbon. So you really need like a carbon tax or carbon price of some kind. Um, and even then you need a pretty high one to make it economic. But on the other hand, 
Um, there are a bunch of companies that are trying to basically turn CO2 that is captured into something else. So put it in concrete, turn it into CO, which is a material that gets used in all sorts of different products. Uh, and there's a whole universe of technology that is turning CO2 into a useful product and thus creating an economic incentive to capture it. So there's a, a ton that could get built around that space. Should we see if our listeners want to build their own lists? Yeah. I would love to hear if others uh, want to riff off of your categories and solutions if they would have a different set of solutions. Maybe we can all respond to Andreessen's call to uh, come up with our own lists and see what we get. Yeah, 100%. So what productive could or should come out of this then? Because it's clearly sparked a conversation. We're here talking about it. A lot of leading thinkers are talking about it. How do we like move forward as we're thinking through this? Yeah, I mean, I think the... The, the two things you can do that are productive based on this are the first one is kind of what we have been doing. So his his call to action was it's time to build. And then it ends with a suggestion that if you don't like his list, come up with your own. So that's what we've been doing, right? We've been focused on what to build. But as you correctly alluded to, the other enormous missing piece here is how to build. So what I would love to see somebody do, be it Mark Andreessen or anyone else, is write their own version of this that is focused on how to build the big stuff. What are the barriers that need to get broken down and how to do that? I certainly don't pretend to have the answer to that question. Would love to see somebody um, who has thought more about it do that. All right. Well, Shale, you accepted Mark Andreessen's challenge and maybe our listeners can accept your challenge. So once again, we'll post Shale's list on the Twitter feed and then we want to hear from you and see what lists you build. And with that, I think uh, that wraps up this conversation. Thanks for sharing the essay, Shale. Yeah, thanks for talking through it with me. And that's going to do it. The Interchange is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. Our senior editor is Ingrid Lobet. Shale Khan is my co-host. If uh, you like what we're doing here and you appreciate these conversations, then give us a rating review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. And make sure to subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts if you aren't already a subscriber. And once again, just follow the Twitter feed there for any updates or challenges that Shale decides to issue. And we really appreciate you being with us every week. Uh, We'll catch you, of course, next week. I'm Stephen Lacey, and this is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media.